welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcasts, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches part three in his series on spiritual vital signs with this message from March 17th titled, Love That Gets Its Hands Dirty. I think most people know and realize the importance to have regular medical consultations with their family physician. But I don't think everyone realizes that their once or twice a year doctor's visit is always going to cut it. To live a healthy lifestyle, it is critical to check vital signs and to keep tabs on your health regularly. There are those who suggest that for adults, vital signs need to be measured more often than at your doctor's visit. So what are vital signs that you and I should be monitoring physically? Well, the medical community recommends an individual monitor on a regular basis their pulse rate, their blood pressure, their respiratory rate, and body temperature. And as a result, there are various kinds of devices and gadgets in the market to help an individual keep tabs on these four vital signs because these body measurements provide critical information about your health, provide clues to possible diseases, and show progress toward your recovery. An article in the American Journal of Nursing indicated that vital sign monitoring is a repetitive and time-consuming task. But the article went on to say that research indicates that there are times when vital signs aren't consistently assessed, aren't recorded, or properly interpreted. In reading about the importance of regularly monitoring our physical health, these questions came to me concerning my spiritual health. Am I regularly and consistently monitoring and assessing my spiritual health? Or do I ignore monitoring and assessing my spiritual health because I see it to be too repetitive and too time-consuming? Do I put it off as being unimportant and unnecessary? I think these are questions each of us need to be asking ourselves. The Bible is very clear that there are spiritual vital signs, spiritual markers that help us assess our Christian living and our maturity. And these spiritual vital signs are the standard by which we can mark our spiritual progress. There are three virtues which show up together repeatedly in the New Testament as the apostles assess the various churches to which they write. And these three virtues form a comprehensive way to assess our Christian living and our Christian maturity. This trilogy of markers is most clearly defined in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 or chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul penned these words to the Christians who were scattered throughout the city of Thessalonica. He writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul along with other writers of the New Testament, tell us that the spiritual markers we need to use to assess our spiritual health and progress are the virtues of faith, hope, and love. The symbols that we see on the communion table in front of us this morning. The virtues of faith, hope, and love. 
Two weeks ago, we examined the vital sign of faith that your faith or your work of faith, as Paul puts it. And we concluded that one way we assess our spiritual health is by determining if we have an active, a dynamic, and a living faith. It is not enough to simply claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. The proof of our faith must be evidenced in our good works. If Christ lives within us, then it is only natural to expect that good works or good fruit will come out of us. Genuine faith produces genuine works. And I believe that Paul would say, if there is no spiritual fruit evidenced in your life, you cannot claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. Then last week, we considered the vital sign of hope, or as Paul put it, the steadfastness of hope. Just as good works are the fruit of faith, steadfastness is a fruit of hope. And our hope is grounded in the resurrected Lord and in the promises he has given us in his word. Although we experience troubles and struggles in this life as we pilgrim this earth, there is coming a day when pain and suffering will be no more. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees this. Therefore, in the hardest moments of our life, God wills for you and me to endure to persevere, to remain constant, to follow through on our commitments, to maintain our testimony, and to hold steady. As we do so, our lives will become testimonies that something good and beautiful lies beyond the unthinkable. Steadfastness of hope is an indication, a spiritual marker, that you and I are maturing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we come to the third spiritual marker identified by the writers of the New Testament. Paul describes and defines it in this way. We give thanks to God, remembering your labor of love. Now, labor of love is a phrase often used today in the context of work done for pleasure rather than for profit. It is often used of someone who does something out of the goodness of their heart, regardless of the cost. However, the phrase used by Paul carries greater connotations and implications. It carries the idea of the cost paid, the pains taken, the strength spent in the work. The Greeks associated this word with something that was resistant and difficult. Now, there are passages in the New Testament where the Greek word for labor is translated trouble or bother. Therefore, when Paul uses this word labor, he's not talking about some casual, some lightweight task that you fit into your schedule when it is convenient. There's nothing in the meaning of the word labor that suggests minimal commitment, effort, or cost. Rather, it speaks of strenuous toil and costly effort. These Thessalonian believers were involved in work that wore them out, that was costly, that consumed their time and their energy. And it was labor poured out for the sake of another. These believers weren't spending their energy and effort on advancing and promoting themselves. They weren't using their time and energy to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, to get ahead. They weren't motivated by a self-serving agenda. Rather, they were willing to spend themselves for the sake of other people. And love was a motivating factor. The Greek word for love, which Paul uses, is agape love. 
Agape love describes a love that is based on the deliberate choice of the one who loves rather than on the worthiness of the one who is loved. This kind of love goes against natural human inclination. It's a giving, selfless, expect nothing in return kind of love. It is virtually impossible to exaggerate the importance of agape love. Nothing is more basic to true spirituality than the singular virtue. Nothing is more central to Christian living. At the very heart of authentic discipleship is love. Paul says that without love, we are nothing. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added a second commandment that follows directly from the first. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this, Jesus asserted that our love for one another is the identifying badge of discipleship. The Apostle Paul further maintained that such love is the fulfillment of the law. That is to say, love meets every requirement of the divine standard. It is a debt that can never be repaid. So love must be given continually. In Christian, love, in, in Christian living, love is not a secondary matter. It is a primary matter. Love is never incidental. It is fundamental. I think you and I would have to agree that our society has a very anemic understanding of love. For some, love is conditional. Conditional love has an if-then formula. If you love me back, or if you do nothing to forfeit my love, or if you're beautiful, or if you're interesting, if, 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 then I will love you. Then I will continue to love you. Then I will show my love to you. Conditional love. For others, love has to be earned. These individuals only demonstrate a form of love when they feel someone is worthy of their affection or when someone has done something to merit their love. And then there are those who would define love as a feeling. They describe love as a warm and fuzzy feeling they have toward another person. It's a kind of a sentimental or romantic love. And then there are some who blur the true meaning of love altogether. They use the word love to describe their enjoyment and pleasure found in everything from ice cream to cats. But this is not a description of true biblical love. Agape love involves sacrifice because of its willingness to give up, to give of oneself to for another. Love makes all sorts of demands upon us. Some big, some small. Some will cost us money. Some will cost us time. Some will cost us sleep. Some might even cost us our lives. True biblical agape love is willing to get its hands dirty. And so when the Bible speaks of our labor of love, it's talking about love that moves us to do hard things, that motivates us to get its hands dirty for the sake of someone else. The consistent evidence that the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart is that we pour ourselves into the service of someone else. That we give up and give away for another person regardless of whether they are deemed worthy or not. 
whether it's easy or not, and whether it's reciprocated or not. Your labor of love. Obviously, Jesus himself provided the model of love. The Bible presents to us various ways in which Jesus revealed the depth of his love for us. Obviously, the depth of Christ's love is revealed in its costliness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You and I know the depth of someone's love for us by what it costs him. If he sacrifices his life for us, it assures us of a deeper love than if he only sacrifices a few bruises. In his willingness to give his life on the cross to pay for our sin, we see the depth of Christ's love. He didn't just suffer a few bruises. He was tortured and then crucified on a Roman cross because of his profound affection for us. In a few short weeks, we're going to be observing, commemorating Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. Those times in our calendar that cause us to focus again on the depth of the love of Christ for us. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples before his crucifixion, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. But Christ's love is also revealed through his, its unconditional nature. It is revealed in that he authentically loves us even though we do not deserve his love. On a human level, we know the depth of someone's love for us by how little we deserve it. If we have treated someone well all our life and have done all that they expect of us, then when they demonstrate their love for us and toward us, we're really not all that surprised. On the other hand, if someone loves us even after we have offended them, even after we have shunned them, even after we have disdained them, then we're overwhelmed and we are amazed. The more undeserving we are, the more amazing and deep is a person's love for us. We need to see and understand the depth of Christ's love in relation to how undeserving we are of his love. In Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 8, we read, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But listen to what Paul says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were unworthy of his love, he died for us. An unconditional love. But Christ's love is also revealed through the bestowal of manifold blessings. Again, we know the depth of someone's love for us by the greatness of the benefits we receive in being loved. If we are helped to pass an exam, we feel loved in one way. If we are helped to get a job, we feel loved another way. If we are helped to escape from an oppressive captivity and given freedom for the rest of our life, we will feel loved another way. And if we are rescued from eternal judgment and torment and given a place in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and, and pleasures forevermore, we will know a love that surpasses all others. 
And so we will know and see the depth of Christ's love by the greatness of the benefits we receive in being loved by him. The Apostle Paul began his letter to the Ephesians with these words of praise and thanksgiving. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with a few spiritual blessings, with some spiritual blessings. No, Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The depth of Christ's love for us demonstrated by the bestowal of these manifold benefits and blessings. And then Christ's love is expressed by the freedom with which he loves us. John Piper explains it in this way. If a person does good things for us because, some, because someone is making him, when he doesn't really want to, then we don't think the love is very deep. Love is deep in proportion to its liberty. So he gives this illustration. So if an insurance company pays you $40,000 because you lose your spouse, you don't usually marvel at how much this company loves you. There were legal constraints. But if your Sunday school class makes all your meals for a month after your spouse dies and someone calls you every day and visits you every week, then you call it love because they don't have to do it. It is free and willing. We see the depth of Christ's love for us in its freedom. In John chapter 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I voluntarily give my life for you so that you can be redeemed from your sin. That's an indication of the depth of Christ's love. And so these are some specific ways of seeing the depth of Christ's love for us. And Paul says that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. In other words, we're to become imitators of Christ in the way that we love. In 1957, Ayn Rand published her novel, Atlas Shrugged. The thesis of the novel is simply this. Putting our efforts anywhere short of meeting our own needs is foolish and self-destructive. Happiness is our highest moral purpose and selfishness the greatest virtue. Isn't that still the mantra in our day and age? Yet when Jesus came to earth, he came not grasping, but letting go. He emptied himself of his kingly majesty, set aside his divine power, took upon himself the form of a servant. And why? Because he loves us deeply. And after washing the feet of his disciples, he spoke these words to them and by extension to us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this will all people know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus had demonstrated to his disciples what love looks like. Self-giving love looks like as he put out, took off his robe and wrapped himself with a towel and knelt and washed the feet of his disciples. And Jesus says, I have left you an example that you go and do the same thing. You see, when we see these characteristics of love in Christ, that it was unconditional, that it was costly, that it was bestowed favor and blessing upon us, that it came freely without anybody coercing him to do it. He says, that's how you are to love. That is how you are to express grace and mercy and care to others. You are to serve. 
And so when we offer sacrificial love to those who do not deserve it, seeking to lavish them freely and unconditionally with bountiful blessing, we obey the command of Jesus and we imitate his life of love. I'm not sure if you realize it or not, but you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are a part of a rich heritage of love. Not too long ago, I read an article by Paul Thigpen where he outlined numerous ways in which the church and believers in Jesus Christ demonstrated love, care, and service for others. He says, when the Christian faith exploded on the international scene in the first century AD, the pagan culture it invaded was often startled by the heroic efforts of the churches to serve their local communities in love and in mercy. Churches quickly established generous traditions of caring for the needy, both in their midst and beyond. Early on, deacons were set apart to care for the daily distribution of food to widows and others. Each congregation had a treasury for, uh, for relief of the poor and special efforts such as famine relief were made in times of crisis. Among the needy who were especially targeted for assistance by the early church were widows and orphans, the sick and the elderly. Those who died penniless were provided with a decent burial. Many ancient pagans practiced infanticide by abandoning unwanted babies. And so what did the church do? They rescued such children and, and gave them homes. Exiles and travelers received gracious hospitalities. Prisoners were visited and comforted, especially those who were condemned, often for political and religious reasons, to the inhumane conditions of labor in the imperial mines. At times, relief was brought to such prisoners from a distance of hundreds of miles. Church leaders thundered from their pulpits against the injustices of their day. Excessive taxes and the harsh methods of em employed to collect them. The oppression of tenants by landowners. Extortion by usurers. Enslavement of freemen. Cruelty to slaves. Favoritism in the courts. And the tyranny of public officials. Even before Christianity became the official religion in the Roman Empire under Constantine. Influential Christians were active in the political arena offering new standards of justice and helping shape legislation, introducing moral reforms, such as more humane treatment of slaves. Constantine himself abolished the cruel gladiatorial sports, which had forced slaves and prisoners to fight brutally to their death, while bloodthirsty crowds cheered. The church demanded and eventually received other kinds of civil legislation as well. The privilege of Sunday rest for all people, even slaves, the abolition of the right of life and death that fathers had possessed over their children, and the right of the churches to serve as a place of asylum for those who were being pursued by the authorities. By the end of the 5th century, the church in nearly every city administered ministry houses for the poor and institutions that were originally intended for the care of travelers, but soon took on the combined tasks of hospital and hotel, almshouse, and asylum. Monasteries sprang up throughout the empire, which provided surrounding communities with evangelism, poverty relief, education, vocational training, hospitals, and refugee shelters for those displaced by war. The 6th century collapse of the Roman Empire in the West 
left the church as the only institution extensive enough and sufficiently well-organized to take its place in maintaining social welfare programs, relief services, public works, and even peace negotiations with the invaders. Throughout the Middle Ages in Europe, the primary burden for Christian outreach to the larger community shifted from churches to monasteries. In addition, new religious orders emerged, each with a special mission. Some were evangelists, some were teachers, some were given to medical care or alms for the poor. New brotherhoods and sisterhoods, as they were called, and even military orders emerged as Christian organizations for maintaining hospitals, orphanages, and leper houses. One medieval brotherhood provided burials and maintained cemeteries for the impoverished. Another specialized in building bridges and roads, erecting inns for travelers who were too poor or sick, and protecting merchants and other wayfarers against robbers on the highways. Yet another Christian organization collected funds to ransom prisoners and slaves held by the Muslims in the East. Some Christians went so far as to offer themselves as slaves in exchange for captives. Perhaps the greatest gifts of the medieval church to the wider community were schools that soon became some of the finest universities in the world. Then later on, there was the immigration of Christians to the Western Hemisphere, the establishment of the first orphanage in the English colonies by the revivalist George Whitfield was a sign of things to come. The fruits of the fruit of several re spiritual revivals known as the Great Awakenings included an intense refocusing of concern and love for the larger community. Out of these revivals emerged countless interdenominational voluntary societies whose activities included efforts to care for the needy, call for justice and reform the morals, the morals of society. Stirred up by the preaching of social activists such as the revivalist Charles Finney, Christians lobbied successfully for the abolition of slavery, suffrage for women, and the reform of mental health institutions and unjust labor practices. They worked hard to extend religious education throughout their communities by establishing Sunday schools and distributing Bibles and religious tracts. They fought the spread of alcoholism and provided Christian fellowship and, uh, and healthy recreation for lonely young people moving to the cities who might otherwise be seduced by gamblers and prostitutes and bartenders. They cared for the growing ranks of the poor in urban centers where floods of immigrants often arrived with hardly a penny to their name. And they established hospitals, asylums, orphanages, homeless shelters, and soup kitchens that still serve millions of people today. You and I have received from our spiritual forefathers, forebears, a rich a tradition of outreach ministries. In each generation, those who took seriously Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself have gone looking for new ways to love and care for their communities. And in so doing, have established a host of Christian institutions that have displayed remarkable vitality and longevity. And so the question is, when the last page of history is written, what will be said about our generation's contribution to this wonderful heritage of service and compassion and love. You and I stand in a long line of individuals, of churches, 
of believers who said we need to take seriously the command that Jesus gave to love one another as he has loved us. That is a marker of our spiritual progress and maturity. Paul says, as you, are, you, as you sit down to assess your spiritual progress, use the measurement of love. More precisely, determine your labor of love. Never look for servanthood that costs nothing. Never gauge the level of your giving to the level of your getting. Rather, look for opportunities to help, to give, and to care. One day, when we stand before the Lord, we will not hear him say, I wish you had kept more for yourself. On that day, when we stand before our Lord, we will not regret the sacrifices made in the service of love for his glory. We will not feel any remorse over the money given or the time spent or the sweat poured out or the hundreds of behind-the-scenes efforts expended for Christ's sake in the lives of others. Why? Because love gets its hands dirty. You and I cannot settle for minimal commitment, for minimal effort, or for minimal cost. Love is a marker of our spiritual progress and maturity. But so also is faith. And so also is hope. When it comes to our physical vital signs, some people ignore them altogether. There are indications that things are wrong with them, but they tend to close their eyes to them. Perhaps they're even afraid to visit their doctor because they're afraid of what the doctor may say. There are others who refuse to mark their physical vital signs because it's time consuming. It takes effort. Could the, true, could the same be said regarding our spiritual vital signs? Do some of us not want to assess our spiritual progress because we are afraid what the Holy Spirit might say to us, how he might be prompting us, what he might be calling us to do? Do we perhaps not take the time because it's time-consuming? It takes work to look deep within our heart and to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to, to get beneath the surface of all the stuff to see what really is happening within us spiritually. But Paul would say to us, you need to assess your spiritual health. And to these believers in the, at the church in Thessalonica, he was so encouraged by their spiritual progress he said, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. A faith that is demonstrated through good work. Your labor of love, a love that is costly, a love that is willing to get its hands dirty. A love that doesn't settle for the minimum. And your steadfastness of hope. You persevere even though life is difficult. You keep going even though life is hard. You know that God's grace will be sufficient. You know that God is going to use what you're going through to teach you, to strengthen your faith. And so you don't give up. You don't quit. You keep going. I trust that 
as we take opportunity to sit quietly before our God, that we would pray, Holy Spirit, reveal to me my spiritual progress. Holy Spirit, show me what those spiritual vital signs are like in my life. What needs to be strengthened? What needs to be shored up? What do I need to commit myself to? And in so doing, find your life strengthened spiritually, but also your joy increase because your relationship with Christ is growing and you're entering into that depth with him and experience that intimacy of fellowship that only comes by abiding in him. Let us pray together. Father, you know what is within each of our hearts this morning. You know what kind of assessment needs to take place. And you know the results, the answers already. But Father, I pray that we would not be afraid to ask you to search us deeply, to know our thoughts and to know our heart. I pray that we would not pass this off as being too time-consuming, too, too costly. Father, that we'd be so concerned about our spiritual health that we would sit before you and just simply ask your spirit to search us and to know us, to reveal to us what needs to change. Understanding that as change is brought about in our life, we, we grow in our relationship with you and, and experience more joy and contentment and satisfaction. And, and so, Father, I pray that we would see, use these markers of faith, hope, and love to determine our spiritual progress and maturity. As we leave from here, we realize that you send us into the world to be a blessing. You send us into our community, into our neighborhoods to declare the rule and reign of Christ. And so I ask, Lord, that we'd be used of you in that way. And in so doing, bring honor and glory to you, pointing people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.